They slither. They stagger. They swoop from the sky. These minions of doom. And yet the intent of each is the same. Destroy the thing from the swamp. Hello everyone and welcome to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. I'm Paul Matthew Carr, your guide to the weird, the wacky, and the often wonderful of 70s swamp-based monster comics. Today on the program... Man-Thing number one. Yes, it's Man-Thing number one, the battle for the palace of the gods. It's the second part of the story which began in the last issue of Adventure into Fear. And it's full of Gerbery weirdness, as can be expected. But the big news is the fact that this is Manny's brand new self-titled book. Now, today, a number one issue really isn't a big deal. Uh, they happen often, almost yearly. In fact, I think Marvel has started launching new number ones inside new number ones. But, you know, back in the day, a new number one was a big darn deal. When a series started, uh, if it took off, of course, it was expected to last a long, long time. And the idea of renumbering was pretty much unheard of. Uh, titles like Fantastic Four and Spider-Man were well into the hundreds at this point, and over at DC, they were in the 400s, I believe. So a number one meant something. It was, it was truly the start of something. And you were not likely to see a character with a number one again for decades, or ever, really. We knew to collect a number one because it was going to be rare and special. But yeah, not so much today. Number ones cease to be a big deal when there is a new one every year, and don't get me started on organizing your collection. Speaking of collections, there just so happens to be a new podcast that a friend of mine and I have been putting together. It's called The Collected Edition. That was a pretty slick segue, don't you think? Uh, anyway, uh, this podcast is, as I said, with a good friend of mine. His name is Brian Reese, and each episode we discuss a famous run or story arc of a particular comic. Now, I've known Brian for a very, very long time, and uh, basically these are just conversations we were having anyway. Uh, we just decided to record it. We try to keep the discussions focused on the topic, but, well, we do have a tendency to wander around a bit. Uh, still, we've been having a lot of fun doing it, and I think it's pretty entertaining. So if you have a hankering to hear two guys talk about comics, uh, you should check out the Collected Edition. You can find it at all the usual places and at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. Uh, we got a few episodes up with many more in the works, um, and I'm going to play the trailer for that later but yeah, uh, check it out. I, I think it's coming out. I think it's coming out okay. You know what? I think I'm just going to go ahead and play that trailer right now. Get that out of the way, and I can get back to talking about Man Thing Number One without any more interruptions. Uh, so here it is. Hey, Brian. What's up, Paul? Do you like comic books? I do. I love the funny books. Do you like listening to people talk about comic books? Why, yes, Paul. I find that both entertaining and informative. Well, that's great, because there's a new podcast where each episode a famous run or story arc is discussed in detail in a fun and totally not rambling way. It's called The Collected Edition. The Collected Edition? That sounds intriguing. Who are the hosts? Well, that's the best part. It's us, Paul Matthew Carr and Brian Reese. What? 
fantastic. I love us. We're awesome. Where can folks find this amazing podcast, Paul? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. The Collected Edition can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. That's great. I'm going there right now. Me too. Are we done? Yeah, I think that'll do. Wasn't that great? <laughs> uh, so, so let's get into Man-Thing number one. Now, Man-Thing's first self-titled book is from 1974. This will run for 22 issues and lead to multiple appearances and cameos in other titles, one of which I'll be covering on the next episode. But how exactly was a title like Man-Thing allowed to happen? How did it come to be? Again, nowadays you see this sort of experimental, oddball type of book uh, quite often. It's, it's, it's rather common. But back in the 60s, it wasn't really something that happened very much, at least not in mainstream comics. But that was changing. And so starting in the early 70s, more and more bizarre, strange titles were appearing. And there's several factors for this, and it's something that made this period of comics incredibly interesting. Now, the most obvious thing you could say about a book like Man-Thing is that horror comics were on the rise. The comics code was easing off, not being enforced as rigidly as it once was, and so, sure, a book about a swamp monster would seem to fit nicely into that mold. But Man-Thing was more than just a horror comic. Yes, it had the trappings of one, but it dealt with subjects that weren't your typical comic book fare. It was parody, it was satire, and, well, it was just plain weird. And that's the key. That's what fit the time so perfectly. For you see, the 70s, my friends, was just a freaking weird time. And to understand that, you have to look at the climate of comics at the time. As I said, the comics code was loosening, and that allowed a greater freedom to tell a wider variety of stories, with wider variety in tone and subject matter. Add to that, a new generation of creator was emerging one that was willing to take risks and push the genre in ways that it had never gone before, ushering in a new wave of creativity that comics had never seen. Don't get me wrong, uh, comics had seen periods of creativity before. Uh, the golden age in the 30s and 40s was a whirlwind of creative experimentation. But it was new, and in many ways unfocused. No one really knew what the medium could do, and so... Everything was thrown at the wall to see what would stick, to see what would actually work. And sometimes it was genius, and sometimes it wasn't. In fact, a lot of the time it wasn't. But it was a growing medium, a growing genre, and it was taking shape. Comics were becoming something unique, something new. Well, that is until the code came along. The strict censorship crippled the creative momentum for nearly a decade. That being said... Those wilderness years did produce a, a style, a standard for comics. A refined language of comic storytelling emerged. And because of that, creators like Lee and Kirby and Ditko and others could begin using that language to innovate and refine it further and, again, push the limits of how stories were told. And this led to a resurgence in comics in the 60s. And at the same time, there was a, a growth in underground comics. These were independent, often self-published. They had no code to adhere to, and 
As such, they dealt with politics and sexuality and drugs in ways that mainstream comics couldn't even attempt. They were often crude and indecent, offensive, funny, and wildly popular. And the market for comics, mainstream comics, had kind of overextended itself at this time. It was on a bit of a downslide at the start of the decade. Uh, The big companies were looking for the next big thing, any big thing, and they were willing to take some chances. So creators began jumping from company to company, causing turmoil behind the scenes. Hell, the backstage mix-ups and machinations over at Marvel could be a topic in and of itself, and actually it will be on a later episode. This turmoil led to some creators editing each other, and as such would allow things to slide by that in the past eh, probably wouldn't have flown. So it's in that atmosphere that new wave creators started working. Writers and artists like Gerber, obviously, but also, you know, Jim Starlin, Marv Wolfman, uh, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, Roy Thomas, and all those are just off the top of my head. Uh, There are many, many others and many more examples. And they would thrive with a decrease in censorship and an increased level of freedom in the way a story could be told and the visuals that could be shown. An inspiration could be taken from the older creators that paved the way and set the rules, the rules that they could now break, as well as pushing the envelope by utilizing the ideas and themes from underground comics. So the 70s experimented. They used parody and satire, mature language, well, for the time, that is, and they dealt with politics and race and religion and gender. They used strange psychedelic visuals and mad, crazy designs, innovative page layouts, and they utilized storytelling techniques from film and literature and stage. And to be fair, again, it didn't always work. And looking back on it now, it can seem a bit quaint. Maybe a little silly. Okay, it's a lot silly. But much of what was being done at this time, much of the experiments that the writers and artists tried, opened doors to the possibilities of what comics could be, what they would become. So yeah, it's a little silly. But it's also fascinating and entertaining as hell. This period of comics is often called the Bronze Age, as if to signify its lesser status, uh, as if it's not as good as what came before. The 70s in comics is often seen as an embarrassment because of, as I said, really silly things that came out. (laughs) And it's true that the the topics that were discussed were not always done in a sensitive way, and, and the portrayal of women and minorities were less than adequate. But for all the clumsiness and insensitivity, creators were trying to address ideas and subjects that were taboo only a few years before. This was a time of radical reinvention of the genre that paved the way for what we think of as modern comic book storytelling as we know it today. And it is in this atmosphere that a comic like Man-Thing could exist and thrive. Man-Thing number one, Battle for the Palace of the Gods. Cover dated January 1974. Steve Gerber, writer. Val Mayeric, artist. Sal Trapiani, inker. John Costanza, letterer. Dave Hunt, colorist. Roy Thomas, editor. We begin in the F.A. Schist construction camp, where Korek the Barbarian, Howard the Duck, and Man-Thing are attacked by demons. Astonishingly, this will be the least weird thing to happen in this story. 
During the battle, Korak chops one of the demons into pieces with his magic sword, but finds this does not kill the demon, but instead he is attacked by the demon's disembodied limbs. Howard as well attempts to kill a demon by shooting it in the heart. This does not phase the demon either. Finally, Man-Thing simply takes a demon, folds it in half, and wields it like a club to bludgeon the other demons into submission. Suddenly, the enchanter Dagomnith arrives to whisk the demons away in a tornado and teleport Howard, Korak, and Man-Thing to his enchanted castle. Then, things get strange. Jennifer Kale, in full sorceress garb, is held captive at the Congress of All Realities. This is an interdimensional meeting hall where people from all realities meet to discuss their common aspiration, godhood. Godhood is defined as dominion over all planes of reality, from the green pastures of Thuria to the dark domain of Sominus. Yeah, that sounds legit. With a fanfare, the leader of the Congress of All Realities arrives, the Overmaster, whose despicable evil visage is that of a rather dapper man in a suit. The Overmaster's goal is to be lord of all reality, and he can only achieve that if he kills Jennifer, because, yeah, that makes sense. And as he orders his minions to strike the killing blow, they are interrupted by Daredevil and Black Widow swinging through a hole in reality. Seriously, that happens. They're only there for a moment, but it's enough to distract the Congress as Jennifer melts into a puddle of nothing. You know, like you do. Turns out the melting was caused by a spell from Dakamnit, and she soon reappears to join the rest of the group. Dakamnit briefly explains the structure of reality and how it's a big old mess. And soon, the team is off to dimension hop on a ribbon of reality to set the cosmic axis back to normal and protect the gods of Thuria. Still with me? Good. So, they then travel the space between reality in the nowhere and unness, where unfortunately... Howard falls into oblivion, never to be seen again. Dakamne, in a case of too little too late, then remembers he probably should have given everyone protection to stop such a thing from happening, as they tumble through the void till they reach the cause of the interdimensional trauma, the tottering needle of the cosmic axis, which is literally a giant red arrow that needs to be pushed back into place. But before they can do that... The Overmaster and the Congress of All Realities smash through the fabric of reality, racing towards the gods of Thuria to take control of all reality. Still keeping up? Okay. So of course, Dakamnir gives everyone wings to fly there first. Korak rightly calls out the wizard, saying he probably could have done that earlier to save Howard, to which Dakamnir says, yeah, he forgot, cementing the fact that Dakamnir is pretty much a dick. And so at the drawbridge before the Palace of the Gods, Man-Thing has to confront the Overmaster, who pulls off his human form to reveal that he is in fact the Netherspawn. What a twist! Man-Thing and the devil-looking creature fight, with neither getting the upper hand, till Man-Thing pushes the Netherspawn into water that is holy without impurity. This pure water washes away his evil and leaves the Netherspawn a withered gray core. Seeing their leader defeated, the Congress runs away. Our team wins, technically, but this leaves our heroes a bit peeved at the fact that the gods didn't lift a finger to help them the whole time. Dakamne explains that the gods were watching out for them, and that they were in fact two dogs living with a peasant couple in a cottage near the palace, and not in the palace at all. That explains everything. 
Man-Thing then pets one of the dogs on the head, and everyone is transported back to their appropriate homes with a feeling of well-being and contentment. All except, of course, Man-Thing. The Man-Thing has returned to his rightful place, though there is no sense of calm and wonder in him. There is only the omnipresent haze obscuring all thought, all memory. Oh, he recalls some of the experience. The friendly Dio, or was it Geo? Then he forgets even that. Okay, there's a lot to go over here, but the first thing I need to address is the cover. Done by Frank Bruner, it is a classic. It shows Man-Thing in a hunched pose looking directly at the viewer, pushing aside vines of the swamp as if he were coming right at you. It's simple and perfect. It's one of those images that has become iconic. The the, the tagline over Man-Thing reads, The most startling swamp creature of all. A subtle nod to the fact that there was, in fact, another swamp creature getting popular at this time. And there's a round call-out on the cover that also declares, Now in his own magazine, a fear-fraught first issue. <laughs> now, I, I appreciate the Stan Lee-style alliteration, but this issue is not exactly fear-fraught. Uh, but hey, it's marketing, baby. Who said it had to be accurate? The story, of course, continues directly from the close of last issue, with uh, demons attacking Man-Thing, Korak the Barbarian, and Howard the Duck. And there are just some wonderful visuals here. Korak chopping one demon to pieces and the body parts floating around beating on him. It's it's disturbing and hilarious all at once. And uh, speaking of hilarious, when Man-Thing folds a demon in half and beats the others with it like a club, I mean, it's just, it's just glorious. And wow, this is only the first few pages. And this, <laughs> this all leads to a comedic scene where uh, after Dakame uh, teleports everyone away, the construction workers uh, get all vaudeville. <laughs> One says, It couldn't have been real. The other responds, Then we're agreed. It just didn't happen, right? What? What didn't happen? Right. You can just see Abbott and Costello doing it as a skit. And then we go to the Congress of All Realities. Okay, this is what I kept thinking the whole time. Uh, have you ever had an eight-year-old tell you a story? Well, it sounds like this. And then there was a talking duck and a barbarian and a monster and they were fighting demons and then a wizard came and, and they rescued the princess by melting her and then Daredevil was there and Black Widow and there were pirates and army men. Seriously, it's just one thing piled on after another. I don't want to say this is juvenile because it's far from it. There is great storytelling here and some wonderful satire, but there is just so much going on. It, it's, it's relentless. And oddly, it all makes some sort of sense. Well, maybe not the Daredevil thing, but everything else really does. And kudos to Val Mayer for visualizing this madness. The Congress Hall is great. It's a, there's a giant light bulb at its center and multiple character designs from spacemen to aliens to Vikings, cavemen, militia leaders, and just, just so much there. And he does a great job of making the interdimensional reality hopping sufficiently trippy, uh, all Didgo-esque psychedelic. And, it, you know, it can't be easy to take a Gerber script like this and turn it into something coherent. So, again, Mayerick is to be commended for his job here. One page in particular stands out. It's a splash page with 
the Congress of All Realities literally smashing through the page in a convertible. The Overmaster is there looking very JFK-like with demons and cowboys and dinosaurs and there's an elephant and what looks like a knockoff of the Flash. I mean, it's just, it's really great. Uh, there's even a, in a typical 70s editorial note, telling the reader how to view the page because you have to turn it on its edge. Um, experimentation was in full effect, but not everyone thought the reader would get it. And speaking of not getting it, there's a whole bunch of subversive things here in this kitty book. But before I get into that, I want to address a couple things. Uh, I want to address a couple of disappointments I had. First being the sudden demise of Howard. And yes, yes, I know, he comes back. And yes, he was just a throwaway character introduced as a gag, but did he have to literally be thrown away? It seems that even Gerber knew this was pretty abrupt because on several occasions he has to make excuses for why he wasn't saved in the story. In the long run, though, it's not a big deal, but it's Howard, man. Respect. Also, the explanation of how and why reality is breaking is, to me, a bit rushed and not explained very well. It seems like it seems like Gerber had so many ideas he was trying to cram in, so many visuals he wanted to throw in that the reason why those things were happening were sort of hand-waved away. Again, in the long run, it's just crazy fun-time weirdness and probably not best to think too hard on it and just, you know, just say, comics, and be done. Those are minor quibbles, though. Now, subversiveness. Several things are going on here. First, the Overmaster. The fact that he is represented as the devil in disguise, as a businessman or politician, it's not hard to evaluate the meaning there. This is very early on in the 70s, not too far removed from the hippie aesthetic and the notion that the man is taking over our reality. It was very much seen at the time that corporations and big business were gobbling up resources and trampling on individual rights for the sake of profit. And through the use of spin and constructive narrative, these corporations, and by association politicians, were able to alter our perception of the world, make it seem as if they were, in fact, forces of good, and that their actions were helping and not harming. Basically, changing how people perceive things and ultimately creating their own reality. This, of course, was a long time ago, and thank God that can't happen now. So, yes, this was a not-so-subtle dig at the establishment, and the unmasking of the Overmaster as the devil is a pretty obvious metaphor. But it goes even deeper than that. I'll use as an example, on the wall behind the giant light bulb in the Congress of All Realities, uh, the light bulb itself is a symbol of ideas and creativity, uh, but behind that are the words quid est reality. And that, to me, is a paraphrase of quid est veritas, or what is truth. This is a Latin phrase that was used by Aquinas and Augustine and in the Gospel of John, and it means, well, to boil down hundreds of years of philosophy into a brief statement, it means what is truth. How do we know what is real? Ultimately, we cannot. And we end up creating our own reality by what we choose to believe and what we are told by others. In the end, it comes down to faith to decide what is really real. However, having faith in the wrong ideas or the wrong people can lead you astray. That's pretty heavy stuff, and you might think, I'm reading too much into this fantasy comic, but I don't think so. Because the resolution of this crazy weirdness is not revelation on high. It's not wisdom decreed by divine intervention. You won't find reality in the words of others. You won't find God in a castle. 
Where you will find the gods is in the smallest of places, protected by those you least expect, and you will find truth in a place of peace. That is reality. In the end, the devil is defeated by purity of thought, and we are sent home by innocence, friendship, and love. I adore this comic book. I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. So, that's it. This issue is just a hell of a lot of fun, and some deep, thought-provoking stuff hidden in there as well. This was a comic that I read as a kid. I, I don't remember if my brother bought it or an uncle, but I had this issue, and I read through it multiple times till the pages were torn and tattered. There was something compelling about it. I suppose as a kid it was the fantasy aspect, but something else made me keep coming back. I can't say that I understood the underlying themes, but... It spoke to me in a way that other comics at the time did not. I don't know. I guess it just reinforces the notion that if you're not careful, you might just learn something. So next time on the program, I will be discussing Man-Thing number two. Nowhere to go but down. Good title, huh? (laughs) It's almost as if Gerber knew with an opening extravaganza like this, he inevitably would have to drop off in quality, that he couldn't match that, that whirlwind of crazy. Now... Is that in fact true? Is there a drop-off in quality? Well, I guess we'll have to find out next time. I've been working on my teasers. And in addition to Man-Thing number 2, I'll also be discussing Avengers number 118, To the Death. Uh, It's part of the Avengers Defenders crossover that was going on at the time, and Man-Thing makes an appearance. I'll just be talking about his cameo. Uh, And this is the first time I'll be discussing a cameo appearance by Man-Thing in another book. Well, uh, I guess there was that Kazar thing from way back, but it's the first since he's been established as a main character. Anyway, I I stand by my statement. Also next time, I'll be talking about some announcements in the Daddy Elk Production Studio, or Basement of Goodies, as I like to call it. (laughs) Uh, Lots of stuff coming up in October on the websites across the network and multiple podcasts from myself and others. Basically, it's going to be busy. Creativity is running amok. And I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to talk about that. So, yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. I do appreciate it. And I'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to the Nexus of All Realities, a Man-Thing podcast. The Nexus of All Realities is a Daddy Elf production. Man-Thing and all related titles are copyright Marvel Comics, and no infringement is intended. The show can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you head on over and leave a review, I'd appreciate it, and I'll be your best friend. You can contact the show via email at 
nexus at daddyelk.com or online at nexusofallrealities.com and leave a comment on individual episodes. You can also connect with the show on Twitter at Nexus of All. The Nexus of All Realities is for entertainment purposes only. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? The fact that he is represented, <clears throat> represented, uh, represented, the fact that he is represented, God, I said it again. The fact that he is represented, yeah. Uh...